I want to tell you before we start this morning that uh, at the end of the service, um, we will be voting on Keith Christensen, those of you who are members of Calvary Bible Church. Uh, Keith yesterday um, did his oral exam, his uh, ordination exam, and did a stellar job. And so uh, the elders uh, met together and uh, unanimously concluded that it would be appropriate for us to recommend him to you uh, to be ordained to gospel ministry and, uh, and to have all the rights and privileges that, and responsibilities that come with that. And so um, it, our, our bylaws require us to, to vote on that. And so we're going to do that as a membership after the service today. And so, uh, visitors, you're welcome to stay for that. Um, for those of you who are down the hall, we'd like for all of you guys to come down here. We're going to give a little time there, about five minutes in between the end of the service and the beginning of the vote. And so if you guys could just plan on that, that would be great. Just a little housekeeping issue there. And, uh, and let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to you today that we once again have the opportunity to come and worship and bow down and to kneel before the Lord, our Maker. It's easy to do that in a free country, complain as we will about what's happening politically and culturally. We still have freedom to worship you, and that's not true of all of our brothers and sisters around the world. And so we praise you for the privilege of it, and we praise you, Father, for the opportunity to listen to your word. It's one thing to say that we worship and bow down. It's another thing to hear what your word tells us to do and to choose to do it, even when it's uncomfortable. And so, Father, we praise you that not only do you command us to do things, but you give what you command, and then you bless us for doing the very thing that you gave us the, the power and the will to do. How gracious and kind you are to us. And so we praise you. I pray for the mothers who are here today and ask that they would be encouraged by this message from your word. Thank you that in your providence, uh, this next passage in First Timothy is just what we need to hear today. And so we give you thanks for that as well. We praise you for it all in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Um, for preachers, holidays are uh, somewhat of an interruption. And I try to limit the interruptions as much as possible while, while at the same time recognizing that some holidays are really good and it's good for the church to recognize them. And certainly, who would... Uh, uh, who would say that Mother's Day would not be one that we should celebrate? It just so happens providentially that as we work our way through First Timothy, we land on this passage. And yes, it's speaking about widows, but it's speaking about mothers as well. And I hope that you'll be encouraged if you're a, a mom here today, and you dads as well, to, uh, to at least have some things to encourage your wives over. The sad reality is in American culture, the, popu the populace in general idolizes the young and kind of marginalizes and belittles the old. Of course, there are obvious reasons why the young are exalted over the old. Many of them are strong and fast and beautiful. The opposite is usually true of the aged. I'm preparing myself for that. Some will say it's already come, Pastor. <laughs> um, there will never, likely never be an America's Got Talent Seniors Edition. <laughs> if one of the major networks broadcast a senior Olympic, a summer Olympics, it's unlikely that anybody would watch. It's just not what seniors have to offer. In the Genesis 3 world, old people are rarely considered strong, fast, and beautiful. Beautiful. What older people have to offer is not strength and beauty, it's experience and wisdom. And that's more important. Some cultures in the world do give greater honor to their elders, not just the ones who have accomplished great things in their youth, but to anyone who is older, all older people in general, because of their length of years and presumed depth of wisdom. In our culture, however, it's generally not the case. Old people are often marginalized. They're treated with impatience and disrespect, especially on the highways. In the Christian community, however, this should never be so. Older saints are to be held and honored and treated with respect. They are not 
They are not to be marginalized. They are to be sought out for counsel and wisdom that they have acquired over many decades of walking in faith under God's word and trusting in his promises of future grace for a lifetime. There's much to be learned from the senior saints in this church body, and especially the widows. Even, Paul would say, even even when uh, an older man, a senior saint, even when he sins. You remember back in chapter 5, verse 1. We're in chapter 5, so look at verse 1. When an older man sins, he is to be addressed as a what? As a father, not rebuked harshly. And an older woman is to be treated like a mother, even if she sins. That is, they are to be treated with honor and respect. As we continue our study of 1 Timothy 5, we're learning about what it looks like to live together as members of God's household, God's family, God's oikos. And one of the things Paul wants us to learn is that widows in the, in the church are recipients of God's unusual and special care. Already we've learned that God requires adult children and grandchildren to take care of their aging parents. Beginning in verse 9, however, Paul begins teaching us about the special place of honor that godly widows have in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so let's stand together and out of respect for God's word, read this passage. And then we'll talk about it. I'll pick up in verse 3 just for context's sake. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children and grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers day and night. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is no less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to be married, and so incur condemnation, and, and having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what should not be said. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. Paul begins this section back in verse 3 where he commands us to honor the widows who are widows indeed, or your version may say true widows. What is a true widow? Well, a true widow in the eyes of God is a woman who is left all alone without the support of a husband or family. They are women whose hope is in God and who are faithful in prayer, as we just read. Such Such women should be honored by the church through financial support. Rather than being considered a liability, the senior saints should be considered a valuable spiritual asset to the church because of their wealth of wisdom and experience. And this is the ministry of the church to widows. And we talked about that last week. And then in verses 9 through 16, Paul shifts gears from ministry to widows to the ministry of widows. 
Apparently in the early church, or at least in the church of Ephesus, Paul had established what might be called an order of widows. Uh, that is, a specially designated group of widows who pledged to remain unmarried and use the remainder of their years of life in service to Christ alone in his church. The list that Paul refers to here is, is the list of um, those women who have so dedicated themselves as widows to remain celibate, to remain unmarried, and to serve the church, serve Christ through serving the church. And this is the list that Paul's referred to in verse 9. Um, it's not merely a list of women that the church will financially support. It is a list of women who, will, who are, yes, financially supported, but who are ministering in the church as well. Now, uh, just full disclaimer here, not everyone believes necessarily that there was a order of widows, and I'm certainly not going to draw a line in the sand on that. It seems to be the case here in the text, and I'll show you why as we go along. Nevertheless, nearly everyone agrees that there is a, uh, a, if not a special order of widows, at least it's generally agreed that those who were put on the list, in the words of John Calvin, received on condition, they were received on condition that the church should relieve their poverty and that on their part they should be employed in ministering to the poor as far as the state of their health allowed. And so there were certain widows who were put on this list and being put on the list, they pledged not only to be at the church and receive financial support, but to minister in that church. And we read, uh, in other places in, in the scriptures about older women and how they served. I think it's safe to suggest that their ministry was broader than what John Calvin said, namely ministry to the poor. Uh, we know from the passage we just read that their ministry involved prayer and other things as well. In fact, we could flip over to Titus, which I won't ask you to do, but Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, where Paul addresses older women in the church. And this is what he says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are, here's some duties, they are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Very similar to what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now it requires no imagination to suspect that the duties and characteristics of these older women listed here formed the basic substance of Paul's expectation of older widows as well. So here in Titus 2, 3 through 5, Paul is obviously talking about married women. But in the passage before us, he's talking about widows. And I would just suggest that whatever he says about older women, what they should be doing, I mean, that's what widows are, right? They're older women. They should be doing those things. They should be instructing the young women. They should be involved in in various kinds of ministry in the church, teaching the women to be self-controlled, to love their husbands and their children, working hard at home, and, uh, and things like that. They might also, we might add, work with children, the poor, as Calvin says, the sick. In any case, certain qualifications had to be met for older women to be considered eligible for the list of ministering widows. In fact, Paul reveals two things about the the list. First, he reveals what kind of widows qualify to be on the list. What, what women qualify to not only receive financial support, but to be part of this group of ministering widows. And then he follows it with, um, uh, with an explanation of those who don't qualify and why. And so we're going to talk about both this morning. And draw some applications. So number one, widows who qualify. Widows who qualify to be on this list, to be a part of this group of ministering widows. In order for a woman to be enrolled on the list of ministering widows, three things needed to be true of them. Verse 9. Verse 9 says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is no less than 60 years old 
having been the wife of one husband. So 60 years old. You've got to be at least 60. And he's going to explain that later. You've got to be at least 60 years old. In antiquity, 60 was the year when a person was considered officially old. <laughs> I won't have a show of hands of how many have reached that, but there are a number, and I'm rapidly approaching that. In the case of a woman, if she reached 60, it was highly unlikely that she would ever remarry. And it was highly likely that there was no way she was going to be able to support herself. Secondly, she had to be the wife of one husband. The wording here reflects back on the qualifications for elder. Remember that? Had to be a husband of one wife. And this, again, supports, I mean, the reflection here, there's a couple of occasions here in this list where there's a reflection on the qualification for elders. And all I'm saying is I think Paul has recognized them as, as an important group in the church. This isn't just a loosely you know, understood there were, there were widows in the church and we hope all of them are ministering. No, no, no. These are people who are on the list and they couldn't get on the list, like elders, couldn't get on that list unless they met certain qualifications. And so it was true here with these widows. Husband or wife of one husband. And so the wording reflects back on the list for elders. In other words, in order to qualify for the list, she had to have a history of fidelity to her husband who is gone, late husband. This is a good work. Look at verse 10. She has to have a reputation for good works. This is the third thing. For example, and here's how Paul gives the, the, the examples that Paul gives. Certainly not an exhaustive list, but here's what Paul says. I think that these following items are examples of the good works he's, he's thinking of. For example, having raised up children... The language here means to nourish children. It, uh, it means to take care of them as a Christian mother, to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Of course, not all women have children. And certainly Paul is not begrudging them, but a woman who doesn't have children can still minister to children. It can still help those, like we said this morning uh, when we had our little parent dedication, Right? Um, you can devote yourself to helping the mothers who have little children. And sometimes those moms just need relief. And all the young moms said, (laughs) amen. Well, a couple of them said amen. (laughs) All of them probably said it in their heart. I remember when we had small children, my wife, sometimes she just needed some relief. And there there have been older women who've been a part of Calvary Bible Church for years, a couple of them, who time after time after time stepped in to our, our I was going to say little family, our big family, and, and just took the children away for hours, either to go swimming or to go out to eat or go see a movie or something just to minister. That's what Paul's talking about. That is a good work. It's a good work. She can assist those who do have children, and she can minister to orphans, of which there were many in ancient Roman times. And there are uh, many children, even here in Fort Worth, who they may not be orphaned, but they're underprivileged. As our new relationship with River Tree School indicates, uh, there's plenty of opportunity for, for men and women alike to go minister to these underprivileged children. I mean, they're, they're almost walking distance from here. And they're in such need for encouragement and for someone to show them Jesus. And praise God for River Tree. They, they're a Christian uh, private school, and you can go over there and minister and share the gospel with these kids and not worry about anything. Uh, another good, lo- wor- good work is showing hospitality. That is, she kept, she kept her home. This is reputation, right? So it's past tense. She has kept her home open for service to believers from out of town. In the ancient world, inns were notoriously dirty, expensive, and immoral. If you were a traveling Christian, you would hope that you wouldn't have to find a hotel because it was going to be bad news for you and your children. Traveling believers always hoped to find a believing family in the town they were visiting who would care for them and give them a place to stay. Of course, hospitality involves more than that, but she would have to have an a reputation is one who, whose door has always been open to whatever the need has been. 
It too is a qualification for elders, by the way, mentioned back in chapter 3, that he must be hospitable. In Romans 16, Paul commends Phoebe, for example, for her reputation of hospitality, not only to the Apostle Paul, but to others as well. And then Paul says, here, watch this. Let me just read the text. We're in verse uh, 10. And having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, the next one is, has washed the feet of the saints. Has washed the feet of the saints. Now, uh, washing feet was, as you know, the duty of the lowest slave, the lowest servant in the house. And yet we know that at the, when Jesus established the Lord's Supper, he was the one who washed everyone's feet. And you remember, he said, Am I not your Lord? You know that I am. And since I am your Lord and Master, and you have seen what I have done, then you should do this as well. Do likewise as well. And he wasn't establishing the ritual of foot washing. What he was saying is, you men are far too proud. You think far too much of yourself. But remember this, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so the washing of feet kind of became a metaphor for humble service to others. A woman who has a reputation of washing others' feet is not self-centered. She's not trying to promote her own reputation. Her concern is to serve Christ by serving others, even in the most menial ways I've seen some women in this church body do things um, in service that were just astounding to me, how they humbled themselves, either to clean up messes or to bathe people or whatever the need was, whether they were prepared to do so or not, just dive in and serve because the need was pressing and someone needed to step in. This, beloved, is a good work. It's good works. It's so important for us, the elders have talked about this this year, that, um, you know, we want to be evangelistic. In fact, you can can just count on, we're going to be talking about that more in the future. But you know what? Evangelism is not the only good work. There are things that God has prepared beforehand that you should do that are just good to do. Whether you get around to sharing the gospel or not, you should if you have opportunity, yes. By all means, share the gospel. I'm not in any way diminishing the call of God on us to share the gospel. But I think also we need to understand that every good work honors the Lord. You see someone, men, you see someone who's got a flat tire, get out and help. Stop the car. Get out and help. Do good works. Show the world what God is like. And so this was one of the good works. Washing the disciple, washing the saints' feet, humbly serving in menial tasks. The next one is caring for the afflicted. Watch this. Um, she has washed the, the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has cared for the afflicted. The word afflicted here means distressed or under pressure. It might be physical affliction, it might be spiritual affliction. The idea is that she is ready and equipped to render aid. In some cases, the term in classical Greek was used to refer to rendering financial assistance were necessary if if this particular person has the means. But it's, 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 it's a desire to step in to help someone, to relieve the pressure, to give them counsel, to bring the word of God to bear, maybe to relieve them financially. Whatever it is. Maybe it's, maybe it's just taking care of their, their groceries this week or, or taking their children away for a while. This all kind of dovetails with one another, you see. And then the next one, in verse 10, at the end of verse 10, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. Devoted herself is a very strong word in the Greek It suggests that the widow has a reputation for diligently laboring in any kind of good deed that represents itself. Any kind of good deed. If a need presents itself to you, and there's not something greater that that needs your attention immediately, then dive in. Help. There shouldn't be any standing around. I often say that to my kids. There shouldn't be any standing around. We've got work to do. 
She's not slack in her ministry to others. Her life reflects the pervasive ministry of Jesus, who was always involving himself in personal ministry to others, always on the lookout for something he could do for others. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Do you remember the, the, the background of that verse? And, and, and we've talked about this many times, but it bears repeating. Out of Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel has this vision, right? And he sees heaven. He sees into the very throne room of God. And there's the ancient of days. I take that to be God the, God the Father, sitting on his throne. And before him is being presented the Son of Man. And the ancient of days gives to the Son of Man all the nations so that they might, listen, that they might serve him. Jesus is that Son of Man. It was his favorite term to use of himself. And yet when he came to earth, he told his disciples, even the Son of Man did not come to be served. I am the Son of Man, the one that the Ancient of Days has given all the nations to that they should serve me. But I did not come to be served, but to serve. I am God, and I am your example. Are you God? Do you you get to have other people serve you? No. And that was Jesus' whole point. I am the very son of man. How dare you demand that other people serve you? I came not to be served, but to serve. You see, beloved, God is honored by our good works. And for a widow to be added to the list, she had to be over 60 years old, and she had to be, um, what was the other two? She had to be over 60. She had to be the wife of one husband, and she had to have a reputation for good works. She was a servant. She was a worker. We should not allow ourselves to miss the obvious observation here that all of the character qualities mentioned in these verses are qualities that were true of these women. Listen, they were true of these women before they were considered old. You know what that means? Let me interpret that for you. These were characteristics of them when they were young women. And they couldn't have had a reputation when they got old if they weren't doing that stuff when they were young. This isn't wait until you're 60 and start doing these things. It's start doing it now. Build this into your character now. These were qualities that young Christian women in the church of Ephesus apparently worked hard, or or at least Paul wanted them to work hard at building into their lives long before they were widowed. As such, they should be considered the standards that every Christian woman should strive to build into their own lives by the transforming power of grace. Now is the time. Today is the day. You don't know if you have tomorrow. Build this kind of life now. Strive to become more like Christ in this regard. Now is the time to gain a reputation as the proverbial excellent wife of Proverbs 31. And at this point, I just want to pause for a minute uh, and, and really just praise God that he has graced this church with so many women of excellence. There are many here at Calvary Bible Church who already possess these qualities and are faithful in their service to others and in ways that are listed here and even those that are not. And so on behalf of the church body as a whole, let me take this opportunity on this Mother's Day to say thank you to all of you women, all of you moms especially and grandmas Those of you who have served, thank you from all of us who have been recipients of the grace of God so lavishly poured out through your ministry to us. Today, it does not go unnoticed. Yesterday, it may have gone unnoticed. (laughs) But today is the day, men and children, today is the day to recall the grace of God being poured out to you through your mother Through your wife, we praise God for you, ladies, and we thank God for you. 
And we long for God to use you to help raise up the next generation of young women, godly women, help them build this kind of reputation of people who are living, women who are living a gospel-shaped life, a life that is shaped by all the things that Jesus wants them to be for his glory and for their own joy. And so in verses 9 and 10, he teaches us about widows who qualify for the list. Secondly, in verses 11 through 15, we learn about widows who don't qualify for support and full-time ministry. And we need to understand here that while there may be many people in the church body who have significant material needs, the church is incapable of meeting all of those needs. Uh, the church is, is, is not the government. We're, we're, we're not a social security uh, agency. And Paul understood that there needed to be clear lines of distinction between those who qualified and those who couldn't qualify, at least not yet. And the one sweeping characteristic that marked those who could not qualify was their age. If they were 59 or younger, if they were 59 or younger, they could not be put on the list. They were not allowed to be put on the list of widows. They were not allowed to be supported by the church. They were not allowed to be a part of that ministering group of women. I'm sure they would minister with them, but they were not in included formally on the list of ministering widows. If the woman had lost her husband, was under 60 years of age, she did not qualify. And the remainder of these verses explain why. Look at verses 11 and 12. But refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now, this text can be a little confusing, which is why every seminary student has to learn Greek uh, to help understand what Paul was, was getting at here. Um, as, we look at this, as we look at this passage, uh, these, these couple of verses, there are a couple of things that, um, that, that stand out to us. Again, it doesn't take much imagination to pinpoint the circumstance that Paul was thinking of. And frankly, as I was writing this, uh, it occurred to me that over the years, I've known a number of young women, young married women, who suddenly and unexpectedly lost their husband. Periodically, I'll have a young seminary guy, in fact, uh, they're the guys at Southern Seminary are required to call pastors they know and ask them a list of questions. And so I get asked these same questions again and again from guys, young guys who are at uh, seminary. And so they call. One of the questions is, what's the most difficult thing you've ever had to do as a pastor? And for me, the most difficult thing was, thankfully I was the associate pastor. I was up in Kansas ministering there at a church. And the senior pastor and I had to go to a home where um, the children were being brought home from school early so that myself and the other pastor could tell the children that their daddy was not coming home. He was driving a truck. He wasn't paying attention. He was coming up on a railroad track. It was a big ice truck. He couldn't get it to stop and, uh, and hit the side of a train, and it killed him. And, and not, just, not just her. There have been others uh, there, are, there are women in this body who have suddenly lost their husbands while they were young and maybe already had a child or, or more children. What could be more devastating to a young woman? The grief is always, always overwhelming. Even if they are grieving in faith, it is still overwhelming. There still is going to be floods of grief that roll over them. It would have been very easy for such a woman in ancient Egypt, Ephesus, that is, to say, I will never love again. I'm going to commit myself to Christ for the duration. And I'm just going to serve the Lord by serving his church. So sign me up. And be celibate for the rest of my life. And I'm going to serve Jesus. Noble? Yes. Wonderful? Yes. But ill-advised. That may be a noble ambition. Sooner or later, 
The grief melts away, however, and such a woman is likely to have a change of heart. You might meet another godly man and begin feeling that strong pull to once again enjoy the pleasures of married life. In fact, uh, the verbiage here uh, kind of gives the indic- it, it's it's uh, used in classical Greek of an of a uh, an animal stuck in a trap and trying to escape it. The grief is gone, and a new desire that is very very strong takes over. And now they want to get out of the pledge that they made to serve Christ alone. In some cases, such a young widow would have such a strong desire to marry that she might be tempted to marry an unbeliever. I've met many young women over in the lands of Russia who are in that predicament. They're gifted, and they have so much to offer but they are unmarried because they are committed to not marrying an unbeliever. But there are so few men who love Christ. And most of those women will just um, be single their, their whole lives. But their desire to be married is great. And some of them succumb. And they marry an unbeliever because they just so long to be married and have children. And in that case, they would, once again, they would long to to break the pledge that they made, which they shouldn't have made in the beginning. Two significant words here in verse 12 are condemnation and faith. The word for faith is not a reference to saving faith, but it is properly, I think, translated here. The word is pistos. It's it's a form of pistos, which means faithful or, or believing But in the NAS, it's translated pledge, and I think that's a proper interpretation here. It's not that they are turning their back on salvation. It's that they they have a strong pull to turn their back on the pledge that they made to be a part of this group of single widows for the rest of their life. Um, So they're tempted to, to turn back on this pledge that she made when she devoted herself to a life of celibacy. Apparently, the pledge was a formal commitment that was taken upon joining this group of ministering widows. To set that pledge aside in order to to get married would result in some form of censure. You get the impression that before anyone made this pledge, they were strongly exhorted to understand that this is for the rest of your life. And they would... So, so condemnation here doesn't mean condemnation in the sense that, you know, they're going to be condemned to hell or that they would be disciplined by the church or thrown out, but there would be some level of censure. You should have thought about this before you joined this group. And, and so here's what Paul is saying. Not that this kind of thing was going on, but this is what will happen if you allow young widows to be part of this ministering group. They are going to be faced with temptations that they may not be able to resist. And when that happens, they're going to be horribly embarrassed and people are going to look down on them. They're going to face censure and it's going to be, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for the church. It's going to be hard for them. The likelihood of this happening with a young widow was high, and it would damage her reputation and perhaps the reputation of the church. And second, a young widow supported by the church would likely face other unnecessary temptations in that position. So so understand, this is a young woman. What does young mean? Well, we know it's under 60. He's probably thinking younger than that, like we are. Um, Easily marriageable age. A young woman, she's lost her husband. And now she is wanting to be supported by the church. And she's thinking, I mean, I don't have a husband. I don't have many options here. Um, maybe the church will support me. If, here's what Paul is saying. Hypothetically, if the church takes her on to support her so that You know, she's free to minister and to serve and to do really whatever she wants. She's going to be going from house to house with the other widows. She's going to to glean information from families as she goes to this house and that. Who's who's marrying who? Who's dating who? You know, don't don't have Facebook or anything, but you learn it from 
from people as you enter their homes, and you're going from home to home, and there's going to be temptation on these young women. And here's how he describes it, verse 13. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So Paul's solution? Paul's solution is simple, verse 14. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. No occasion for slander. Don't put a young woman on the list, Paul is saying. Don't let her become part of the designated group of ministering widows supported by the church. Instruct her to remarry, have babies, busy herself in the ministry to her husband and her children. This is what godly women do in the household of God. This is what godly women do in the household of God. And by the way, phrase, the phrase in verse 14, manage their households, it's a unique phrase. It's translated um, from the Greek uh, oikodespitos, or uh, more specifically here, oikodespiteo, um, oikos, Right? We've talked about this, verb, this word many times, right? Oikos means, not yogurt, right? <laughs> means household, right? Household. And despotos, what word do you hear there? Despot, right? And what comes to mind when you think of a despot? Um, probably what comes to mind, and rightly so, is, um, is, is the thought of a strong ruler, one who is unmistakably in charge. Um, we think of, of someone who is leading. Now, that doesn't mean that she usurps her husband's authority. What Paul is doing is exalting her role in the home. Uh, the husband doesn't do everything. And, you know, Proverbs 31, one of the things about Proverbs 31, the, Proverbs, the P31 woman, right? Her husband trusts her with everything, everything. She's doing all kinds of stuff. She has all kinds of responsibilities. That's sometimes a burden, sometimes a great joy for her. But she is the oikodespotos, the manager of her home. Um, on this term, John MacArthur writes this, the meaning of this word goes beyond raising children to include all aspects of managing the household. The man provides the resources through his labor, and the woman manages them. She manages them for the care of her husband and her children. Um, she has a huge role in the home. And she has much freedom, much freedom to take care of the things that need to be taken care of and to do what needs to be done. This is a weighty counterbalance, by the way, to the message that women hear from the world. And many women have so encumbered their lives with outside pursuits that they unwittingly neglect their primary role and imperceptibly cause, home to the, cause harm to their home and their children that they are entrusted to manage. Well, once again, I feel compelled to, to commend the women of Calvary Bible Church there are so many mothers and young grandmothers, I would include my own wife, and young grandmother of this church who would, for your, for your faithfulness, we praise God for you, for your faithfulness to your husbands, your children, and your grandchildren. We know that you've sacrificed much, and you continue to sacrifice much. And some of you have sacrificed careers and did so willingly. Most of you probably don't know that when um, my wife and I graduated from college and moved to Dallas to go to seminary, uh, my wife, uh, she's, I know, she, she's probably watching this right now and saying, honey, don't talk about me. <laughs> but, uh, but you should know this. She, um, she became part of a brokerage firm in downtown Dallas and was a licensed stockbroker. And that's how she put me through school. Uh, and the career that lay before her would have been substantial, to say the least. But we started having children. And as soon as I graduated, which was as quick as I possibly could, I squeezed my two-year program into 
three or four. <laughs> and uh, at least that program. I did that a couple times, actually. And, um, and she turned her back on, on that career and never looked back. Why? Because there were children in the home. She understood her calling. She understood what God wanted her to do. I didn't have to pry her away from that. She was granted the privilege of raising children, having children and raising children. And so she did. And she would, she would gladly stand in front of you and say, don't think of me as the P31 example. And yet she is an example in many ways of this. Don't listen to what the, the messages of the world that tell you, ladies, you can do everything. Forget about Mary Kay. Her philosophy of living is wrong. You can't have it all. You can't have it all. Not if you want any of it to turn out well. There are imperceptible things that happen in the hearts of your children simply by you being there. And when you're not there, when you're distracted by 10,000 other things, it has an imperceptible influence. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that there are single mothers who just, they have to work. We get that. But you know what? That's also why the church is here. And more than anything, um, we ought to be, maybe not more than anything, but as a high priority, we should be ministering to them as God gives us opportunity to minister to them. So this is a weighty counterbalance to the message of the world uh, for young moms. We are often, uh, we men and we children, if I could just do this once again, um, the men and, and children of this body have been so blessed by you and we are always worth, unworthy recipients of your love and your service. But you serve and care for us just the same. It's a good work that you perform. And your service gives the enemy no occasion for slander. And we praise God for you. Jesus is pleased with your labor. So on behalf of the husbands and children of Calvary Bible Bible Church, I declare that we praise God for you. And all the men and children said, Amen. Oh, way to go, men. Way to go, men. Unfortunately, there are some, verse 17, or verse 15 tells us, who have bought the lie of Satan and have been hooked by the enticing values of the world. And we praise God that you are not like them and that you are making the hard choices. You've chosen to follow the Lord, to be managers of your home and your primary calling. You take seriously, and we are all beneficiaries of that commitment. And so today, the sacrifice, all of the sacrifices that that commitment has required of you do not go unnoticed. And we wish we could thank you in a, in a more robust way. But we praise God for you. Well, Paul then ends this section uh, on the same theme with which he began it, verse 16. And here we read, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is not Paul saying, listen, we don't want to have anything to do with widow care. This is Paul saying, we need to be efficient and focused because our resources are limited. There are widows in this church body who need to be cared for, Paul is implying. And we need those resources for them. And so those of you who are widows, who are young, you're not going to be on the list. And those of you who are, who are young, healthy, strong women, and you have widows in your household, your extended family even, it's your responsibility to take care of them and not burden the church with that responsibility. The church will help, yes. The church will be there to care and to counsel and to support, but it's your responsibility. And that's where he started this whole thing. This is the third time that he's made that, that statement, calling uh, the children, the adult children and grandchildren to take care of their aging parents and especially their aging mothers. And that brings us to my final concern. 
You may be here today listening to this message about how God honors and cares for widows in his household. But at the same time, you realize, as you hear these messages week after week, that though you are somewhat religious and though you attend church every week, you are beginning to realize that you are not a part of God's household. That you have not truly come in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and owned the fact that the only thing you have to offer God is your sin. I would strongly urge you today to become a member of God's family. Repent of your righteousness because you have none to offer God You only have sin to offer God. He will declare you righteous if you come to him by faith, if you come to him by the power of his grace. He will cleanse you of your sin. He will wash you of your guilt. And he will make you his own adopted child as we all are in Christ. The only thing that keeps you outside is your sin. Jesus can cleanse you from it. The only question is, Will you humble yourself to believe and receive that forgiveness? And will you ask him to create in you you a brand new heart, a heart that, that, that loves God and loves his word and loves his people? And I would declare to you, if that is your desire, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. And thank you for um, the many, many women, women in our church body who are devoted to being faithful in their homes now and being faithful to do good works everywhere they go. And you are building this church, in part at least, on their character, on their love, on their service, on their sacrifices. So we praise you for them. Bless them today. And use the rest of us, husbands and children, to bless them today. And all of it for your great glory and for the joy of our respective homes, we pray in Jesus' name.